Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to the, it's, it's, almost April Fools, the April 3rd edition of The Learning Curve. No fool in here today. Um, in fact, whereas we usually, we, I mean, we always are are finding ourselves more and more educated by every guest that we have on The Learning Curve. But this week, instead of just talking about school, we are really going to go to school with a world-renowned historian, Dr. Professor David Kennedy from Stanford University. So excited. But before we get there, I have to say, Hello from uh, from a few states away to my good friend Gerard Robinson. How are you doing today, Gerard? Doing well. Doing well. You guys hanging in there? Is it sunny at least out the window? It is sunny. Uh, it is cool, at least by Virginia standards. But uh, people are wearing jackets, hats. Some people are braving the weather with shorts. Others have on pants. But uh, as we talked about before, one of the big winners of all of this, uh, if there could be any winners of some tragedy of this, are all the dogs who are being walked with more regularity than ever before. So, well, I, I have to tell you, I don't, I don't have a dog um, <clears throat> yet, despite best efforts of the rest of my family. But I got to tell you, Gerard, dogs in Boston are still experiencing the occasional snowfall. So I'm going to see you some cool weather weather and raise you some <laughs> not feeling very fair. Nonetheless, so listen, this is, we're all, it's a little bit of a tense time, but we've got some good news to discuss. I think some, some really interesting news. So our first story of the week, we're going to go to Florida. If, if you're reading Ed blogs and Ed news, everybody's talking about the Florida virtual school right now. So mm-hmm. uh, as you well know, and I want to hear more about your perspective from this. I mean, Florida, no, um, no stranger to natural disasters, unfortunately, but certainly a place that has learned from them, right? So the Florida virtual school, which is actually um, classified as an independent statewide school district, um, is just gearing up. It has been training teachers, and they say that they are going to be able to deliver online curricula to up to 2.7 million Florida students by early May. So they're already sort of stepping in and they're saying, you know, we can't do everything right now um, synchronously, but we are ramping up. Not only are we going to try and offer as much of our curriculum, which is, by the way, aligned to state standards, et cetera, to as many students in in district schools, in non-public schools as possible, but we're also going to ramp up our teacher training to make sure that there's high quality delivery going on here. I mean, in a moment when I think a lot of states that have long been resistant to anything online education, in a moment where we're thinking so many virtual charter schools have been shut down, it seems to me that Florida is really showing that this slow ramp up over time of learning how to do online education is paying off. Uh, at this moment. So, you know, they say that there'll be more than 100 K to 12 courses developed by the Florida Virtual School in mathematics, English language arts, history, science, and even electives. Kids are going to be able to continue with advanced placement, career, and technical education at no cost until June 30th. This to me feels like a really big win in something that a lot of states should be looking at right now. What do you think? I think it is a win, not only for the families, children, the taxpayers of Florida, but it's a win for the nation, and here's why. This didn't happen overnight. Uh, This was a slow but carefully thought out plan 
uh, going back to leaders like Julie Young, who all of us know, uh, who had a strong idea that we could make this a reality. A lot of people laughed. She, you know, tilled the earth and did some great work. So having a leader like her is important. It's also important to have a governor at that time, uh, Governor Jeb Bush, who decided that education was important to the economy and made it a top priority for his administration. It's also following up later with uh, Governor Rick Scott, now Senator Rick Scott from Florida, who took the idea uh, and took it to a new level. And so it shows the importance of state level leadership, of local leadership and tenacity. But there are also a number of uh, school public school systems who created their own um, programs, partly modeled after um, Florida Virtual, some to actually try to compete with that model. I think that there's a role for competition in education. So hopefully other states, particularly those who are playing politics with uh, virtual charter schools, uh, can realize two things. It's doable and it's scalable. And so I was so excited to uh, hear you talk about this. I just think it's a big win uh, for a lot of people. Yeah, it's doable and it's necessary, right? I mean, now we, now we know. If you didn't know before, now you know. And I have to say, I feel like we talk about Florida a lot on the learning curve and not because we're both pretty biased. Maybe, maybe because we're sort of biased, but also this state is earning its press. It is, it is earning, um, it's earning the press that it's getting here and in, in other places. So we're going to keep watching. Like you said, hope a lot of states are learning. Okay. What do you got this week, Gerard? So my story is also about online learning, but in a different way. So Gallup, um, Megan uh, Burnham on March 31st, she published an article and the title is 42% of parents worry COVID-19 will affect child's education. I've had a chance to work with Gallup for the last three years. Uh, there's no organization on the planet uh, who knows more about human ideas, uh, I beliefs, and motivations than Gallup. And so they decided to uh, poll a number of people. And here are a few questions and results I think would be really interesting for our audience. So the question is, are you using any of the following for your child's education right now? As it relates to online learning, 70% said yes. Homeschool, um, children, homeschooling children based upon materials, 26%. Uh, some parents, 16%, say they're using free online programs and associated with their schools. 6% say they're actually paying uh, private providers and others for education. But this is very telling. 11% of those who participate in the survey said they're using none of these. And so that's troubling on a whole nother level. But that's just one question. Then Gallup said, well, how concerned are you about the negative impact? Now, 42 percent, uh, well, actually, let me just give you the exact numbers. 15 percent said very concerned, 27 percent moderately concerned. But, you know, 59 percent were not concerned or not concerned at all. And so that tells us something as well. I know I'm concerned, uh, but maybe for different reasons. So that was a little interesting. And there's also a uh, dynamic about race and political parties. So in terms of non-whites, 52% are more concerned than whites, uh, which is at 36%. And Democrats, 49%, are more concerned than Republicans, uh, 31%. And in terms of how are we going to prepare for the rest of the year and what should we do uh, now that schools are closed, 
27% said they should extend the school year uh, into the summer months, and 48% said not extend the school year, just promote students if uh, formal distance learning programs are completed. So there's a lot of different ideas about what we should or should not do. What do you think about this? I, yeah, I think there are a couple things. I mean, a lot of ideas, especially about continuing the learning when, when this whole thing, when it's safe for us to all go back to school. I mean, I don't think we're going to be able to possibly assess the impact on this generation of kids for years. And so, but I think that these concerns are, are well-founded. And I think in some of the demographic breakdowns that you cite, it sort of stands out that is, you know, this question in my mind of is, is a lack of concern here sort of a privilege? You know, like, like, is it that the people who are generally more concerned that their kids aren't getting a high quality education, even more concerned now about mm-hmm. loss as we see in other surveys. So that stands out to me as, as really quite troubling. The other thing that this brings to, to attention that I, I wish more of us were talking about is, you know, so now parents and, and not just parents, teachers, right? We're all entering this world of finding out that they're actually we have an abundance of resources. We have, I'm mm-hmm. finding stuff. I'm finding this like Stanford history education website. That's phenomenal that I'm doing with my older child. Right. But so we're finding all these resources, but so few of us have the ability to understand what constitutes a quality resource. So, and what constitutes quality, um, as aligned to what my kid's school is doing. Um, and you know, some of us can say, oh, okay, well, this one says it's aligned to the common core. Well, A, to a lot of parents, they don't know what that means. It might signal Mm -hmm. something. B, Mm -hmm. not all kids are learning in schools that are aligned to the common core. Um, so these are really big questions. And it, for me, I want to push, maybe somebody's already doing this and I don't know, but you know, we've got some great examples of organizations like ed reports that can really bring to light, like what is a high quality textbook? What, what kind of, what does it do? What does it deliver? I'm looking for somebody. So anybody out there who has time, or if you're doing this already, give us a call to really curate these online resources so that in this this moment, maybe parents and educators can feel a little more at ease about those things that we're using, perhaps outside of what our schools are giving, or that schools are already leveraging in this moment to give to kids and parents. I think that that would be, that's got to be part of the next push here. But I, I also, I also think that, you know, these fears are probably not going to subside. So parents who are worried about this now are probably going to continue to be worried about it for the coming year because we're really not going to know. And, and as we discussed last time, we don't know what's going to happen to assessments, right? And a lot of places are still trying to figure that out. Probably not going to have them, but what does that mean for the coming year? We're not going to know about the learning lost until probably a good year from now, if then. This will be something we will talk about for a long time. And uh, this will be definitely a, not a footnote, but more than a paragraph uh, in history textbooks in years to come. There you go. Lots of fodder for the learning curve. Well, Gerard, we've got a great guest with us today. Like I said, I think it's going to feel like we're going to school. So coming up right after this, we are going to talk to Professor David Kennedy of Stanford University. Stay with us.
Welcome back, listeners. Uh, Today, we are with Professor David Kennedy. He's the Donald J. McLaughlin Professor of History Emeritus at Stanford University. He received the Dean's Award for Distinguished Teaching in 1988, and he is the current editor, since 1999, actually, of the Oxford History of the United States series. Kennedy is a Pulitzer Prize winner for history. He won it in 2000 for Freedom of Fear, The American People in Depression and War, and his book Over Here, The First World War and American society explored America's political, economic, and domestic life during World War I. Kennedy received his BA in history from Stanford University and his MA and PhD in American studies from Yale University. Professor Kennedy, thanks so much for being with us today. So happy to be with you. So I'm personally really excited because I feel like um, here on the learning curve, we just we talk a lot about K to twelve education, higher education, but we we rarely get to go to. Well, <clears throat> I should I, all all of our guests teach us something, but this feels to me like being in school, having you as a guest. So, first question: uh, hard not to talk about the current moment, highly unusual, but you're particularly well poised to to discuss it. I think. So I'm really curious to know about some of the larger historical lessons you've learned about the impact of, like, it's it's a strong word, but hey, plagues on civilizations generally, Um, you know, since antiquity to, to 1918, the 1918 influenza epidemic, which so many of us are learning more about now. Um, what what are your observations? What are the connections that you see? What What would you have us think about? Well, you're absolutely right that this isn't the first time that the world uh, as a whole has confronted an epidemic or a pandemic on this scale and this degree of danger. Um, The the, the rapidity with which which this became a global pandemic, I think, is its distinguishing feature so far. Its morbidity rate or mortality rate is actually somewhat lower than some of the classic plagues that uh, we know about from history, especially the the great bubonic plague of the 14th century, which killed somewhere in the nature, the neighborhood of 20 to 40% of the entire population of Europe. And nobody wow. predicted mortality rates at that level from this one. Uh, the 1918 so-called Spanish influenza epidemic, we think killed as many as 50 million people around the world. And again, uh, even the most scary predictions about where we are right now aren't predicting anything approaching those levels of mortality. So I suppose it's a very small blessing (laughs) to be sure, but it's one little bit of reassurance that we're not facing a catastrophe quite as lethal as some that the human race has experienced in the past. Yeah. I mean, an incredibly frightening moment for BB because it happens so um, infrequently that the very few of us can, <laughs> can relate or remember. But it also occurs to me as a former teacher and as somebody who studies education that these aren't things that we talk about too much in schools. Can you, can you comment on, um, on s- the state of education around these things, what Americans generally know and don't know um, in a, in, in, giving us the ability to sort of compare this moment to moments of the past. Are these things that are taught in school? What should we be learning if they're not? Well, you you prompt two thoughts, actually. One has to do with the uh, pandemic of 1918, which is a a hundred years ago, to be sure, but is something that has been largely lost to our collective memory. Uh, It's very rarely taught in schools. It's very rarely mentioned in general survey history courses. 
the, the this recent uh, pandemic drove me back to my own textbook, the American Pageant, just to see to make sure we had mentioned it, and we give it exactly two sentences. Uh, so there's something to be remarked about why events on this scale, this catastrophic, don't get more uh, historical attention than they do. Um, so I feel a little bit uneasy or, or guilty, I guess, about the fact that we didn't pay more attention to it in our own textbook. Well, we won't but blame I you. <laughs> I, thank you. But I have a second thought as well, and it, it goes back to something that is sometimes called Tuckman's Law. Uh, referring to something that Barbara Tuckman, the great historian who wrote about the First World War and about the plague of the 14th century, uh, she once said something to the effect that um, most historical accounts underrepresent the normal, uh, that even in times of catastrophe, like wars and plagues, much of life goes on as normal, maybe in some modified form, but nonetheless, people persist. The world doesn't grind to a halt and everybody suddenly drops dead. And that's something worth remind, remembering now that uh, I, in my experience that people are being quite resilient in the face of this uh, calamity so far. Uh, and that probably will go unreported uh, 100 years from now. People will talk about the scale and speed of this, but uh, it, it will go unreported that most people carried on as best they could and survived and came out the other side. Yeah, and in fact, probably many of us are carrying on in unprecedented ways, being that we can't leave our homes, but we're now equipped, so many of us, to work from home. Um, perhaps one of the, and, and even I think, um, you know, in my own experience, it's like uh, meetings with friends, it, although not um, not necessarily where you can reach across the table and touch them, That, but they're able to persist as well in a way that they wouldn't have been able to even, you know, 20 years ago, uh, which is which is pretty remarkable, perhaps the biggest risk of, of normal or, or subversion to normality is, um, is partners and folks who live together um, getting a little bit annoyed with one another at this point might be the biggest danger. Um, as we watch, as we watch what's happening and we think about connections to the past, you know, it's been said that one of the reasons that the 1918 influenza spread so quickly and widely was due to government suppression of information about the epidemic. Um, you know, some of us might feel, I, I, for one, can personally say that I'm having a hard time um, doing anything other than reading a newspaper these days because of fear of just being flooded with so much information uh, moment to moment to moment. But I'm curious as to your take on how the U.S. government has done in explaining the reality as, as they come to understand it, right? Um, today, and especially perhaps in comparison to what we saw in the past with governments downplaying the the catastrophe? Well, again, a couple of thoughts. Uh, I actually don't know that much about what, if anything, the United States government did to suppress the news of the 1918 epidemic. Uh, whatever they did wasn't very effective because it swept over the country in a hurry and 650, 675,000 people died in this country, so it was pretty hard to ignore it. <laughs> but insofar as there might have been any government efforts to avoid informing the public at that time, uh, again, something I don't know a lot about, but one has to imagine that the epidemic happened right on the heels of the conclusion of World War One, And that was the story that one imagines dominated the headlines, as it were, and all the newscasts all over the world. Uh, and this other, the, the pandemic of, of uh, 1918 kind of crept up in the wake of that big news story. So it's 
not terribly, it would not be terribly surprising. The news organs and government organs and so on didn't pay as close attention to it at the outset as you might think they would. But you mentioned another matter <clears throat> about what's the responsibility of government or how have governments responded to uh, crises like this in the past. And that, my mind, when you ask the question that way, my mind goes back to the Great Depression of the 1930s and what government did at that time. And if you want to get a little bit uh, argumentative about it, how that compares with today. Um, the first thing notice about that big crisis, the, the huge economic catastrophe of the Great Depression, is that no government, and especially not the United States government, was in a position to really gather uh, adequate data that really allowed people to understand the scale and speed of the phenomenon that was overtaking them. So, for example, there was a bill in the Congress as early as 1930, before anybody was calling it the capital G, capital D, Great Depression yet, uh, a bill aimed at unemployment relief. And the bill failed. And it failed not least of all because nobody could say with certainty, nobody could answer the question, well, how many people are we talking about here? Are we talking about a million unemployed or three million unemployed or seven million unemployed? Nobody knew the answer because there were no data gathering operations or institutions that really could provide reliable information. It turned out the number was 13 million, which was beyond anybody's imagination to wow. grasp at that to the game. So one difference between that and now is we at least have the capacity for better and more comprehensive information. <clears throat> uh, the capacity is somehow underutilized. The current crisis has been underutilized to a certain extent, especially in this country, but at least we have, we know how to do it if we dismobilize correctly to get uh, accurate information about the scale and velocity of the crisis that's coming at us. So that's one big difference. Another matter I think is, you go back to the old adage, you know, you have to be, it, it has to be, uh, uh, it has to be heard to be believed. Well, there's a there's the inverse of that is no less true. You have to be believed to be heard. In other words, you have to have authority and authenticity and reliability. People have to have faith and confidence in you if they're really going to hear what you're saying, <clears throat> not just dismiss it as more bloviating or whatever. Um, and there, again, I think is a place where we get into some interesting ground of comparison between national leadership in the era of the Great Depression and today, one of Franklin Roosevelt's great virtues was he had credibility and people had confidence in what he said is accurately reflecting reality. So when he said in his inaugural address, you know, the, all we have to fear is fear itself, he was acknowledging the unprecedented scale of this catastrophe and making no bones about it and taking it head on, taking the, taking the bull by the horns. And I think people appreciated that honesty and directness and believed it. Um, to, and the, the, all the contradictory statements that come out of our federal establishment today, I think undermines people's faith in the reliability of the data they're getting. Uh, so that that's a big difference. And I think if you can't trust these institutions, we're in trouble. I actually agree with you, Professor Kennedy. This is Gerard Robinson. Thank you so much for joining us today. You know, when I think about the comments that you've made, I think about leaders in early America like Thomas Jefferson or John Quincy Adams, or even 20th century leaders and thinkers such as Roosevelt or uh, Winston Churchill, or in fact, since you mentioned uh, Tuckman's Law, Barbara Tuckman, uh, who was also a Pulitzer Prize winner. 
they all had a deep grounding in reading and in some cases writing history to inform their statecraft. What should K-12 students be learning about history as a guide for political, political leadership in a time of crisis? Well, of course, you know, as a card-carrying historian and having made my living to raise my family on history <clears throat> for the last uh, half century or so, I think you can never know too much of it. Um, Harry, Harry Truman said, the only thing new under the sun is the history you don't already know. And in some strict sense, that is a really true statement because we have no data from the future. By definition, we don't know what the future holds. And we've just been surprised, hugely surprised by this uh, pandemic, by an event coming over the horizon of time at us that we simply did not foresee, nobody foresaw it. So really the only source of data we have about how the world works and what human nature is like and how societies organize themselves and what, they, what people experience uh, is historical data. That's just, it's, it's a truism of deep, uh, profound implications, it seems to me. So the more history we know, the better we understand the world, the better we understand the world the people lived in in the past, and the better, better we're able to make sense out of our own passage through time, and the better guesses we can make, but I want to emphasize they remain guesses, about what the future might hold and how we might prepare for it. But we, we really have, I mean, in the last analysis, no other source of information than historical information. Absolutely. I was in Charlottesville uh, during the time of 9-11. In fact, I had actually uh, attended an event in New York City three weeks uh, before um, what we now know as 9-11 took place. When I think about 9-11, uh, I think about uh, two world wars. My father was old enough, born in 19. Uh, 13 to have had at least some memory of that. And now we think about the current COVID-19 pandemic and the power and authority of the state and national governments to expand laws in very dramatic ways. Some would say very draconian ways. What lessons from American history should students know about civil liberties uh, during times of national emergencies? In fact, I can think about my time uh, in Los Angeles during the uh, Rodney King riots and uh, the suspension and the curfews and the bringing of the National Guard. It really was an eye-opening experience for a lot of us to what could take place during a national emergency. Talk to us about what we can learn now. Well, I'm not sure the civil liberties is the, the principal focus of this kind of thing. <clears throat> I would think there are more mundane matters, you might say, like freedom of movement Okay, that come up much more sharply into focus in a crisis like this one, um, where we're all experiencing it, where our freedom to move around even our local communities has been severely circumscribed and for good and defensible reason. Uh, but you're, you're, you're right that there are more, you might say, traditionally defined civil liberties, such as freedom of speech, that also come into focus. And it is not a time for rumor to be licensed. Um, uh, you, you make me think, I was just rereading last week, I guess for obvious reasons, <laughs> uh, uh, a very famous Italian novel, it's thought to be the kind of foundational novel of all the Italian literary tradition. In Italian, it's called I Promessi Sposi, translates in English as The Betrothed. And it's about, it's, it's a story of a young couple trying to get married against the backdrop of a plague that has infested, uh, affected northern Italy in the 17th century. And uh, the author, Monsoni, 
checks out of the narrative for two or three chapters to give a kind of historical account of the plague. And it has little or nothing to do with the actual narrative of the married, the betrothed couple, but it's good historical depth. And it's amazing how so many issues that he's talking about that occurred in 17th century uh, Lombardy are replicated today. People not understanding what's the source of the plague, not understanding its medical character, wondering where it came from, starting to blame all kinds of other people from surrounding communities as being the carriers of it. Rumors start spreading about people who were deliberately spreading the plague through Milano and other places in northern Italy by rubbing doorknobs with infected rags, um, riots against uh, strangers who show up in town because they're thought to be carriers of the disease. I mean, it's a whole range of behaviors from three or four centuries ago uh, that have definite echoes in the way some things at least have raised their ugly head uh, in our own time. So, so where that leads me in terms of your question is to think that maybe there is some reasonable, rational, defensible um, uh, basis for restricting certain kinds of speech uh, and communication in a time like this when the danger of misinformation can be really lethal. So there's an old principle in the history of American speech and legal regulation of it goes back to a famous statement by Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. about the right of freedom of speech does not extend to the right to, to yell fire in a crowded theater. Uh, you can yell fire when you're out in the woods all you want, but if you're in a crowded theater and that uh, you yell that and everybody stampedes to the doors and people get trampled, that's not legitimate or allowable the freedom of speech. By that reasoning, we're already willing to put some limits around at least that particular civil liberty of freedom of speech. And right now, I think is the time when we need to pay attention to what is reliable information and what's misinformation and maybe think about ways to uh, get the misinformation out of the airwaves. Absolutely right. Thank you. Well, fantastic. We cannot say enough. Thank you so much for being with us today, uh, Professor Kennedy. This was amazing. A lot of lessons learned, and not to mention reading recommendations. So history textbooks to read while you're cooped up inside, as well as foundational Italian novels. I think something all of our listeners can take away. I hope that you will be back with us um, under different circumstances <laughs> at another time when we're all getting a little more fresh air. But until then, thank you and stay healthy, stay safe. Well, same to you. And thanks for all the good work you're doing in these troubled times. Take care. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Welcome back. My tweet of the week has something to do with charter schools and the NAACP. And on March 30th uh, at Choice Media TV, there was a tweet said, amid dispute over charter school resolution, president of the San Diego NAACP chapter was suspended by the national board. The national board of the NAACP suspended the San Diego chapter president for three years. And why? Because in a letter, uh, he said that he did not believe that the resolution uh, supported by the national NAACP to call for a moratorium on expanding the number of charter schools is the right thing to do. And the NAACP disagreed and suspended him for three years. Uh, this comes as no shock to me. 
Uh, the NAACP going as far back as the mid-1990s has taken a pretty strong stand against public and private school choice. And in the public sector, it includes charter schools. We know more recently uh, they put out a moratorium to say they wanted to put a halt on national um, charter schools. And there were a number of presidents in different chapters uh, who tried to book back on the idea. Uh, at the end of the day, the NAACP spoke. Uh, I'm pretty clear that I would never have been Secretary of Education uh, in two southern states without the role of the NAACP and what it did, not only with the Brown decision, but the Sweat decision and changing primarily how we delivered education. But on this issue, they're pretty clear. There's no room for the expansion of public charter schools. And for those who think they're going to use logic alone to change the NAACP's position on this anytime soon, good luck with that thought. What I am glad is that we live in a country where we can have uh, disputes or we can agree to disagree. And hopefully when all is said and done, our children are smarter, brighter and more bold than we were when we first got started. Amen to that. And I think that we'll see a lot more people uh, valuing and looking to charter schools, despite the politics of it, especially some of the virtual charter schools that have been for so long halted. Uh, we might see a lot of those um, coming back and a lot more states loosening restrictions. So so we'll all stay tuned. Gerard, it's been great spending time with you this week. You know, um, next week, so we had a little programming change, listeners. You might, if, if you're really listening all the way to the end. We hope you are. Uh, last week, we plugged that um, that our friend Tim Keller, senior attorney at Institute for Justice, was going to be with us. He's, in fact, going to be with us next week. We're very excited to talk to Kent, to Tim um, about a range of things. And I think we're going to, we're going to find some nice, some, some spicy questions even beyond um, the Supreme court case that Tim is so closely watching um, Montana versus uh, Espinosa versus Montana department of revenue. So we will look forward to being with you all then Gerard until then stay safe, watch those dog walkers, get out, have some fun. And um, I'm I'll be jealous of that Virginia sunshine. And as you say that, I will walk outside and work on my tan. <laughs> Fantastic. Good luck. Take care. I will remain as pasty as ever. Take care, Gerard. Be well. Bye.